Good evening and welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. I know it, the weather got a little bit better and got a little bit bigger of a crowd. And uh, first of all, I want to acknowledge uh, our partnership with the TCU uh, Schieffer College of Communication. And if I may, uh, the Dean of the Schieffer College, Chris Bunton, is right here. Can we give Chris a hand, please? Thank you. Our partnership with uh, TCU is, is strong and has been in effect for many years now. And um, without TCU, we would not be able to do this. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation, which has been our generous supporter in this series for several years. And without them, we couldn't be doing this. So I want to thank them. I'd like to thank the State Department, um, who you know collaborated with us on this event. and. Um, especially Josh Lipsky, who, who really uh, was terrific to work with. Um, one of my bosses is here, including Bob Schieffer, but we also have Judge Webster in the house, a true American hero judge. Thank you for being here. And I have a really important announcement. CSIS's new website, our first in seven years, is launching on Tuesday. So CSIS.org. It'll be like going from black and white to color, I promise. <laughs> Last thing I want to say is, our, uh, if you get a chance, we are doing a commission that's chaired by Tony Blair and Leon Panetta um, on countering violent extremism. And Farah Pandith is one of the senior advisors and commission members. So uh, please uh, look for more work on that, and we'll keep you all notified. With that, I'd like to introduce uh, the best man in news, one of our trustees, Bob Schieffer. Well, thank you all very much for coming uh, on behalf of TCU and CSIS. And, and uh, we've had some good programs over the years, but I, I think this has promised to be one of our best ever. And uh, the reason I say this is uh, we are going to, we've kind of titled this Breaking ISIL's Brand. And the State Department has kind of revamped and, and rethought its uh, counter-violent extremist uh, efforts uh, uh, through a new global uh, engagement center. And uh, we have Richard Stengel with us today. He was uh, sworn in as uh, Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy uh, on February 14, 2014. He provides the global strategic leadership of all Department of State public diplomacy and public affairs uh, engagement and oversees the bureaus of uh, educational and cultural affairs, international information programs, public affairs, and the Global Engagement Center. And he brings a tremendous background to this job. Uh, prior to uh, coming to the State Department, he was managing editor of Time Magazine. Before that, he was the president and chief executive officer of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Uh, Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton. Uh, he worked with Nelson Mandela on his autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom, later served as an associate producer uh, in the uh, 1996 Oscar-nominated no uh, documentary about uh, Mandela. He's done many, many other things, <laughs> including uh, he's uh, written uh, for many publications. Farah Pandith uh, served in both Bush administrations and the Obama administration. She is a senior advisor and co-commissioner of CSIS's Commission on Countering Violent Extremists. 
she is the first ever special representative to Muslim communities. She's held uh, various positions uh, at the Department of State. And finally, uh, someone I think most of you know, David Sanger, uh, Chief Washington, Car formerly Chief Washington Correspondent of the New York Times, a former Pulitzer Prize finalist for international reporting, former Chief Washington Economic Correspondent, and former Bureau Chief uh, for the Times in Tokyo, now a member of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, and he uh, teaches uh, up at Harvard, too, uh, in his uh, spare time. So, Mr. Secretary, I thought, I thought the way we would do this today is if we would just let you have the floor for a while here. Tell us about this new kind of really way of thinking at the State Department about how to counter this uh, ISIL message, what you're doing about it and what you hope to achieve. And then uh, once you do that, uh, then we'll come in and ask you a few questions about it. So the floor is yours. Great, Bob, thank you so much. And it's wonderful to be on this side of the fence with you after we were on that <laughs> other side for a long time. And, and it's thanks to CSIS and this very distinguished panel. Um, you know, it's called Breaking ISIL's Brand. And in the, uh, in the old days when I was in the private sector, the way you break somebody's brand is to never mention them. So we're already violating the first principle of breaking ISIL's <laughs> brand by, by, by talking about them today. But um, if I can take one step back for a second, this is a generational struggle, as, as my boss, the Secretary of State, says. It's not something that we're going to figure out today. Uh, we're not going to tweak them into submission. John Allen, who was the representative who was, who was head of the anti-ISIL coalition, always used to say to me, you know, victory is not on the military battlefield, it's on your battlefield, the information battlefield. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the information battlefield. For one thing, it's in Arabic, right? I mean, there's been lots and lots of journalism written about, about what's going on in the messaging space. 82 or 3% of what ISIL does is in Arabic. Their second largest language that they do social media in is Russian, 13%. And, and, you, and American, English and French are third at 5 or 6%. So it's not ISIL versus the US which a lot of the stories seem to, seem to say it is. It's about the entire world against ISIL. It's about 1.6 billion Muslims uh, against, against ISIL. And so the, the idea that um, there are a lot of misconceptions about what they do. One of the misconceptions is that they're winning this messaging war. We can talk in more detail about, about that. Uh, another misconception is that what they're doing, their messaging is dark. That's not the case. 80% of their messaging is positive uh, about the appeal of the caliphate. Uh, there's a misconception that their messaging is so sophisticated that they're taking otherwise nice young Muslim boys and girls and getting them to fight. In fact, they're tapping into a vast market of grievance. I know Farah will talk about the crisis of identity in the Muslim world. That's what we're up against. It's not just tit-for-tat messaging. So there's a lot of misconceptions. Now, to answer your question about what we're doing differently, the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications was formed in 2010 under Secretary Clinton to fight this enemy that was more sophisticated in the messaging space than anybody we'd ever seen before. They're called Al-Qaeda. And that was because they had guys who sat on a hillside in Pakistan and talked directly to camera for 45 minutes and put <coughs> it up on YouTube. That's ancient history. Uh, so the center began to see the rise of ISIL in the messaging space. And we started to realize that what we were doing in kind of counter-messaging 
wasn't really that effective, to be honest. In fact, I began to question what counter-messaging is altogether. And I think in the beginning it was like, they say something bad about us, we need to say something bad about them. That really didn't work. So as we started to see that we needed to make changes, it came from a central insight, which was that we, the US government, is not the best messenger for the message that we want to get out there. I remember somebody being in the situation room at the White House and a bunch of white guys sitting around the table and somebody said, are we really the best messengers here? We're not. So it's a candid realization about that. So, so who are the best messengers? The be best messengers are the voices of, of mainstream Islam, of people, of, of Muslims around the world who are repulsed and alienated by this, by the hijacking of their religion. So the creation of the Global Engagement Center, which you mentioned, which was, uh, there was an executive order in December signed by the president, basically says it's not about our messaging, it's about finding credible voices, which is an old idea, but still a powerful one. It's about using messaging campaigns rather than tit-for-tat messaging. Uh, and it's about using data analytics to try to find out if we're being effective, which is another question that it's kind of still the jury is out on that. So this is kind of a new era. And as I mentioned in the beginning, it is a long struggle. Uh, but I feel like we're positioned now uh, to go in the right direction. And even if we look at that macro information battlefield, what we've seen in the last year is that the actual volume of ISIL messaging is down by 40%. Uh, there's now five times as much messaging on social media that is anti-ISIL than pro-ISIL. Again, mostly in Arabic. Uh, and that they're migrating to end-to-end uh, to -end encrypted platforms like Telegram, which is a plus and a minus, which we can talk about. But I do feel like uh, there's a new story to tell about this. Uh, there's a lot of positive things as well as some negative things, and I'm happy to talk in, in greater detail with, with, uh, with all of you. So thank you. All right, well, th that's a very good summation. I want to ask you about one thing, though, that you just said. You said they're not winning. Uh, you're not suggesting that we're winning, are you? Um, you know, I, having come from the journalism world and, and written so many, um, and, and seen so many stories over the last two years about how we're losing uh, the information war. You know, I said to a journalistic colleague, I said like, well, why does your editor still put, we're still losing on the front page? If you do a story about we're winning, that will get on the front page. The, the thing is, there is no real winning or losing. I mean, a congressman said to me, uh, Mr. Undersecretary, how many young men did you prevent from going to a fight in Iraq and Syria today? Well, it's an impossible question to answer. But it, in a way, it is the question that people want to know. So, so in terms of winning versus losing, what are the metrics? One of the metrics is volume. If you look back two years ago, there was no anti-ISIL messaging because ISIL messaging was just beginning. Now there's exponentially more, 10 times more than there was before. The amount that they're doing is also down. And I would argue that even this whole question of winning and losing is wrong because I don't believe that messaging per se, is the thing that makes somebody become a violent extremist. It taps into grievance that they already have, but what, everything that we've learned about what makes somebody go out and embrace violence has to do much more with what, what we call an epidemiological model, personal contact between people, which is one reason why we've seen so many pairs of brothers be involved in violent extremism. It's not just messaging, it's about that, ultimately, that personal contact, and again, that is a, a measurement that's impossible to really register. I, I, I just want to stay on this for just a minute because 
you know, those of us who kind of uh, came of age during the Vietnam War, every day the government would tell us we're winning. And they were telling us we were winning right up until the tanks rolled into <laughs> Hanoi, I mean, and into Saigon. And I, I just, uh, I, I just want to ask you about this whole thing, uh, Europe, because some people say that what the administration is doing is really just playing down the whole threat of terrorism, and I'd just like to hear what your comment is on that. You know, one difference, if you go back to the, use the Vietnam analogy, um, and, I, and I'm the chief public diplomacy officer of the State Department and the U.S. government in a way, and that was an era where it was about state-to-state messaging, right? What government said actually had more meaning. It wasn't an era of non-state actors the way it is now. So, uh, so again, to go back to what I said in the beginning, the, I, the reason I think winning and losing don't really, isn't really relevant, because it's not about the U.S. versus ISIL. I mean, what we say and what I say, or even what the president says, is not going to sway people one way or another. In fact, they, use our, they used our old government messaging as a recruitment tool. Right? Not only did we not dissuade people, we actually incentivized people. So I think that winning versus losing matrix doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really work. That being said, I do think there is a better and more positive story. And I think we've seen the world turning against ISIL. There was a very good uh, Burson Marsteller poll that came out a few weeks ago of 18 to 24 years old in the Arabic world, in the Middle East. And basically, support for ISIL, or uh, was down to 20%, it had been 30% the year before. Even people were asked, would you even support them if they renounced violence? And 80% of young people in the Middle East said that they wouldn't. So that's much better than it was last year. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's US government messaging or any government messaging. I just think that is the reasonable, right-thinking people in the Muslim world who realize this is a distortion of Islam and that they don't like to have their religion hijacked by these people. Fair. So with all due respect to my former colleagues at the Department of State, and certainly I understand um, that where this room is packed because people are desperate to find out information about how we can do a better job with this non-state actor called ISIS. Um, and I would say I agree with you that winning and losing is a hard thing to define. But when you have uh, one billion Muslims under the age of 30 worldwide who are the demographic from which groups like ISIS recruit, and increasingly every day, more and more from every corner of the globe are finding sympathies with the group ISIS, we have a problem. Um, and we have not done the kind of job that we are capable of doing in defeating the appeal of that ideology. Now when I say we as the US government, I obviously understand the limitations on the ideological war and what we ought to be doing. Um, and I think that there is a great deal of conversation in the media about stopping the momentum of ISIS. And that momentum most of the time has to do with the hard power components. But when we're looking at the appeal, breaking a brand or whatever the, 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 the phrase is we want to use, you can't break a brand if you don't understand why it's appealing. You can't get someone to stop drinking Coke if you don't know why they want the Coke. Um, the ideology of the extremists, and today it is ISIS, the big thing that I would say to you is it, the, the problem that we are facing is far larger than ISIS. It's the ideology of extremist groups. ISIS has become a beacon, a lighthouse, that is pulling other groups behind it. And it is providing for them a path forward for anybody that wants to set up this idea of being the true Muslim. Now, 
Um, Rick is absolutely right when he says that the United States government cannot be the messenger in terms of the counter narratives that we need to in insert into, into the world. But what we have failed to do, and this is where um, I think we really ought to be spending our time in understanding what we're capable of doing, is what we fail to do is scale up proportionally the credible voices with counter and alternative narratives across the world. Because if a kid in Denver, Colorado, and a kid in Brussels, and a kid in Delhi, and a kid in Bangkok, all find appeal to an ideology, and they all come from a wide variety of backgrounds uh, and influences, we know that this global threat is, a, uh, is one that is affecting a generation that, um, that is bigger than we, than we are. So what, is, what do I mean by that? I think when we're looking at how to defeat the appeal of the, of the ideology, we have to be thinking as big as they are. And that, that big component set, sets itself up in, in a couple of different ways. One is the mechanics around which the United States government talks about fighting the fight in the soft power space. Rick talked about this new center, and I think it's important that we have it. I think we can do a much bigger and better job of developing the mechanics around fighting this. And, and it, that also includes the manpower, the kinds of people that you're tapping to actually do this job. We don't have the, the best and brightest uh, from outside of government interested in fighting this, nor do we have the best and brightest inside of government who have the skills to be able to go at it in, in the 21st century way. We don't have the money to be able to do this the way we need to be doing it. And finally, we don't have the motivation. And, and if I look at those three M's, the money, the manpower, the motivation, um, we, we, we are where we are today. And so when I think about breaking the brand, breaking the momentum, breaking the appeal of the ideology of extremist groups like ISIS, I'm specifically looking at the millennial uh, population and the generation that comes underneath it. And I'm also looking at the manifestations of this ideology, and that's the threat that we face. Uh, Andrew talked about Juan Zarate, who, who sits on the commission here at CSIS and is a senior advisor and commissioner uh, for this report that we're doing. Uh, Juan and I did a, did a piece actually talking about those manifestations, and that's the big message I would say to the audience as you listen to this. This isn't just about the Middle East. This is not just about this group called ISIS. This is about an ideology that is seeping into every corner of the planet for millennial Muslims that are facing a crisis of identity. And if you stand up and you look at that, and you think about the response from US government to that gigantic threat, we are not fighting the fight we should be fighting. And to me, as I look at this, I know we are capable of doing it. And my final piece on, on, on all of this is, while we have done tremendous work in changing the game within our government, and I feel really proud that we've done as much as we can, what I say to the new president, as they look at the, at the, uh, the years to come and the appeal of this ideology is to develop the kind of 24-7 machine that is proportional and at scale to, to look at what's happening to these young kids. Um, Go ahead. I, I have to say that I can't disagree with anything that you said. And I do think there ought to be a larger effort in the U.S. There ought to be more money, more power. Um, your threat um, uh, is motivation. I think there is motivation. But, and what I would just piggyback on what you were saying is that one of the myths that I talk about at the beginning is that somehow what they're doing is so diabolically sophisticated that they're taking otherwise nice young boys and girls to make them fight. That's not the case. What they are doing is they, they're not creating a market of grievance, they're exploiting a vast market of grievance and unhappiness all across the Muslim world. They're, they're, whether it's unemployment, 
whether it's lack of education, whether it's lack of job opportunity, whether it's not finding a husband or a wife, they are sort of Islamifying the grievance and saying, you know what, there's a one-size-fits-all solution, and it's called the caliphate. Come to the caliphate and all your problems will be solved. That's very appealing to people who are, who are completely mixed up, who don't have a sense of their identity, who are feeling insecure about their own Muslim identity, which, which many, many people are, and that's how they are recruiting people. Um, it's very hard for a government, any government, the US government, to, to combat that. And, and that is why the voices around the world have to offer a different alternative. And, and again, you know, countries need to have better governance. There need to be more economic opportunities. There needs to be a kind of uh, reformation of the way Islam is perceived. And those are, those are grand, grand issues that are not going away. And as you said, it's right now, today we're fighting ISIL. Um, you know, tomorrow it'll be another extremist violent group because this, the underlying grievances are not going away and the people who want to exploit it are going to continue to try to do that. David? Well, it's been a fascinating uh, introduction. I thank you, uh, Rick, for giving us a sense of, of what you're doing and for being so honest about a program that I think everybody who's in and around the State Department knew at the end of the first term simply wasn't working because we weren't certain how to go do it. I have some questions for you about how you measure your long-term goals here versus your urgent goals. So I think as you've just discussed, we have a long-term goal in which you need to put more supply into the system of counter-narrative. You've come to the conclusion we're not the right ones to do that. And you finally got an inventory. And you can see it if you just do a Google search. Because if you did a Google search two years ago on ISIS, you were much more likely to get ISIS propaganda at the top of the search, particularly if you were searching in Arabic. And today, as you say, there's a lot of other material out there. And that took a long time to get, get there. There's another fascinating debate going on within the US government, <coughs> pardon me, within the US government, though. And that has to do with how much do you cut off what ISIS itself can transmit? And that's more of a short-term issue. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, because on the one hand, you have law enforcement and some intelligence people in town here who say, we don't want to shut all of it off, because if they are recruiting, we want to have a sense of who's getting on the system and being recruited, particularly here in the United States, if you're going to stop another San Bernardino. On the other hand, the president has gone out and said to US Cyber Command, among others, I want you to use all of these tools that we have developed to both cut off their command and control, as the president himself said the other day, and also be able to cut off some of the recruiting. Now, that's a very delicate balance, because um, you, you don't want to create a vacuum where you're, you don't know what else is going to fill it. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you sort out that strategy. What do you cut off? What do you keep running, even if it is hate speech or recruiting speech in your mind? And you could unplug all of Syria and much of Iraq, but you're obviously not doing that. Uh, David, there's a lot of questions in there, and, and you've written about some of these things. Um, so you know how complex it is. Uh, I'll, I'll, approach it from the outside in. So one of the things I think people don't realize is how vigilant and aggressive the social media companies themselves have been in this space. We were all, you know, 
you know, two years ago saying, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? They're doing a tremendous amount now. Now, for example, every week I look at, you know, one of the things I ask for is I want to see ISIL's 10 best, whatever it is, video, tweets, et cetera. And now when I look at content, they'll show me a video that was on YouTube and they'll say it was taken down within eight minutes. It had 50 views. It was taken down within 12 minutes. It had 75 views. Uh, Twitter has publicly said they've taken down more than 200,000 handles. They've taken down way more than that. YouTube has taken down literally millions of videos. Facebook has hundreds of people who are working 24-7 to take down this noxious content. And part of it is that there's a lot of, there's a unanimity between the social media companies and the USG on this because none of us want this content. They don't want their ecosystems polluted by this kind of awful content. And they're not taking it down because we asked them to, they're taking it down because it's bad for business, because it violates their constitutions, their terms of service. But you mentioned hate speech. I mentioned at the top that what a lot of people don't realize is that 80%, more than 80% of their content is positive. It's about the wonders of the caliphate. And while we do talk to the, the social media companies about taking down content, how do, what do I say to Twitter when I say, hey, ISIL posted a picture of a basket of apples saying the caliphate is bounteous. You know, you'll have as much to eat as you want here. Can, can we ask them to take that down? Our constitution protects hate speech, or at least the definition of hate speech that, that, that a lot of European countries have. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a delicate situation in that regard. And I actually think the social media companies are making very good judgments about what to take down and what, and what not. Um, in terms of your question about what the intelligence community is doing, uh, which is, is, is not in my uh, bailiwick, but there are sometimes issues where the, the technology companies are hearing from multiple people saying, this, or, this entity says take that content down, and another group says please keep that up. Um, I'm much more in the air on the side of let's, let's take it down um, uh, because I'm not involved in, in, the, in the intelligence efforts, but it is, a, it is a complex equation. But I also, but again, in general, I think there's a much more positive story to tell in terms of, of what the social media companies are doing. And as you both nodded when I said, as a result, ISIL is moving to encrypted platforms like Telegram, where they reach a much smaller audience, but they're able to reach the people that they're trying to recruit that way, and we don't have as much insight into and, that. And how much can you, as I was about to say, what's the balance between, you know, Telegram's hard to get onto, but uh, on the other hand, it's harder for you to see. So tell us how this is. And by the way, things. Telegram also announced that they've taken down hundreds of channels mm -hmm. at the same time. So uh, again, I don't, I, it, it, it is very hard to see what they're doing, and again, because I'm more of the macro messaging person, I, I like the fact that they can't, that they can only reach a smaller audience than they could before. Could, could I say one other thing sure. um, about what, I think it would be wrong to suggest that the only problem that we're facing is what's happening in the social media environment. And I think, unfortunately, we have pivoted the conversation about breaking ISIS's brand or breaking ISIS down only looking at the messages that happen in the online space. And I think it is really important for people to understand that things happen from the grassroots up, and that means what's happening in communities in the offline space matters. ISIS couldn't be ISIS if AAQ didn't come before it. 
And Al-Qaeda appeared because other things came before it. And the manifestations of the ideology of an us versus them and the manifestations of this identity crisis comes out in a lot of different ways. So the issue of hate speech, how people think about themselves as Muslim, whether you're even saying that there is one kind of Muslim and I'm the right kind, whether it's a mother teaching a child, what kid are you playing with? Is that a Sunni or a Shia? Is that a Jew? Is that a Christian? Is that a Hindu that you're playing with? That matters to that, the mind of those young people. So that's happening in the offline space, which, which connects to what they see in the online space. So I don't want to lose sight of how their messaging or how this ideology is transforming communities, because it is really vital if we're going to break this down and actually uh, attack the threat where it, where it lies, is to understand the balance between on and offline and to not just be lopsided about taking things down and they'll never see it, because there's a whole lot that's happening in schools, in homes, and in other places where kids are being influenced. And, and the combination is the deadly one we see today. How are you? Uh, did you want to respond? Yeah, I, I would, if Go you don't mind. So um, the, I, I, I agree with that. And, and I'm going to answer it, unfortunately, in a kind of messaging context. There's this illusion that the whole message game is in social media. It's not. Yep. You know, there's a fancy term in social science, the availability heuristic, which is the thing that you see it increases in importance because the only thing that anybody here sees is something on Twitter or Facebook and, and you think that's the whole game. When I started looking at what they were doing just in the messaging space, they're like a full service agency. They have kiosks all across the middle, Iraq and Syria where they're posting billboards. Uh, they have billboards, they have flyers. They, we can only compete in a strange way in that social media space. It's much harder for us to compete in that full range of people's lives, including Friday prayers, including what uh, clerics and imams say, and including what influential people in communities. So to think that somehow social media from a government is going to compete against this whole range of communications that they have that taps into this grievance is a very, very unrealistic idea. But the system of uh, marketing or the system of breaking the brand means that it's a holistic approach and that's what you're saying. However, mm -hmm. if we cannot articulate to regular people that there is a holistic system in place so that regular people can actually activate in a way that they know how, we will never be able, because government obviously can't do everything, but we have been, we have been very, uh, very limited in our scope of describing how a young person finds the ideology appealing in the off and online space. And we have been very limited globally with other countries, not just America, in really building that counter movement that allows others to take this on, to, specifically to your point of, of changing and building that kind of system of communication that is going to decrease the appeal of, of their ideology. Uh, uh, which kind of leads me to, to what I was just about to ask you there. So you, you kind of know who your best spokesmen are, who your best salesmen uh, to counter this. What, what is the best message? Have you had any way to gauge yet what seems to be working? So uh, I'm glad you asked that because I haven't talked about the positive things happening. Um, so one of the things that, that has happened in this space is we created a counter messaging center with the Emiratis uh, in Abu Dhabi called the Sawab Center. We're creating a kind of network of networks of, of partners who can be in that space. Um, about three or four months ago, the, they started collecting testimony from ISIL defectors, men and women who had gone to Iraq and Syria, gone to the so-called caliphate, and 
they were abused, they were uh, wounded, they were imprisoned, they were cleaning latrines, and they came back and began to offer testimony, direct ca to camera testimony, saying these folks are hypocrites, they're not true Muslims, and they began collecting this data from individuals that were interviewed, from CNN and other news organizations, from Middle East Broadcasting, and they decided let's do a campaign around defector's testimony. Well, it lasted about 10 days and it had exponentially more traffic and engagement and reach than anything anybody had ever done. And we realized we need to be in, in, this, in the campaign space, but that kind of honest, direct testimony from people, from people who were, who were seduced by the ideology and then came back and said that it wasn't working is something that we really feel has been successful and we want to do more of that. Um, I'm sort of interested in the, uh, the metrics that you've uh, mentioned here uh, before, because it's been a very hard thing to measure. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how it is, as you say, as you said to that congressman or senator, it's very hard to know who hasn't been recruited as a result of what you're doing. Equally hard to know who's been turned the other way because they've heard of, from a defector from, from ISIS or someone who was disillusioned. Um, but at some point, you've got to go back to your friends at the State Department and the White House and say, here's our evidence that this approach is working after so many in the past have not. So tell us a little bit about how you measure all this. Well, in my old life, you know, we used to measure everything. People, you find out how many people are reading your story That's on the right. front page at any given time. And my, when I was editor of Time, I had Chartbeat on my screen, and I could see second by second what people were doing, what story they left, where they left, what story they went to. Um, and there was an easier way to measure it. I mean, subscriptions and, and, and things like that. It's much harder in this space. So I also know how metrics can be abused. And I know in government, one of the things we like to do is we like to measure the things that show that we're successful and not measure the things that show that we're not. So, but not kidding. just in government. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, that's universal. Uh, but at the same time, I, we do use some of the same metrics. So if it's the messaging space, it is about engagement. It's about how long people stay and watch a video, how long how many, uh, whether they go from one message from Sawab to another message from Sawab or message from a partner. So when we see more engagement, we see more interest. Now, is there a causal effect to the following, which is also positive news, is that the number of foreign fighters in Iraq and Syria is the lowest number that it's been since 2014, uh, that the flow of foreign fighters has, has decreased by a considerable margin that the amount of content that they're creating has decreased by a considerable margin. I mean, I could take uh, you know, uh, responsibility and, and claim credit for that. I don't know that there's a causal relationship, but all of these things stack up to make it look like there's a better picture. So I know that's not a great answer to your question, but there is no, there is no wonderful, perfect metric for that. Now, one of the things that we have tried, to, that we've talked about, is develop, developing a radicalization index. Is, on the other side, how can you tell when someone is progressing from just being angry and alienated and even embracing a radical ideology to becoming violent? I mean, that is the uh, kind of the, 
the, the treasure chest at the end of the rainbow, and that is something that everybody is working on, including the social media companies. So could I um, comment sure. on, the, on the metric thing, David? Because when I was in government, obviously, that's something that everybody wanted to know. So how do you know what you're doing? And you can't get in the mind of a young Muslim to know where they were and how they're thinking now. Um, I think as, as whooshy and gushy that this might sound, one of the things that is really important is to, to, to measure how many um, non-government efforts existed before you started act, actually moving people along that movement um, carousel. Um, so that mean, what I mean by that is the greatest strength of the United States government is to be the convener and the facilitator and the intellectual partner. I believe that wholeheartedly. I don't believe we should be um, manifesting all kinds of change that's happening. I think that the civil society can do it in a much better way than we can. If I believe that and I know that we can actually catalyze new movements, we can measure what happened in 20 14 and what's happening in 2016, how many more programs came over? How many more people were touched by that program? What are you seeing from the on the ground responses from communities on what's being what's changing with there? And that that's what we can measure and we should have done more, first of all, a better job measuring it, but we should actually look at, at the future and how we can do more of that. The second piece is also to your point about, it isn't just about how many eyeballs hit something. It's not, and it's not about the right kind of content. It's what people do once they read that content. And it's so impossible for us to measure what they do with that content except to see did something get seeded or was there a change with that particular person in how they're talking about something. So I think as we look at the, the metric piece, and certainly the Hill is looking at that with, with the kind of funding that they're willing to, to put forward, that's their, their roadblock. And I, and I would say in this particular fight, we need to be, go a little easy on the, the measurement thing. Because if you want to fight ISIS and everything that comes after it, we have to experiment a lot and we have to begin the kind of uh, very detailed process of, of defining what measurement will mean in some of the ways that I've just described. So uh, let me ask you this. So you know, we know what you think is working for <coughs> us, right, in the, in the counter message. I, I was very, very interested in your, uh, your uh, talking about how so much of their message is positive. And we see only kind of the dark side of it in this country. What's working best for them? I, I think their altruistic message does work for them because it's tapping into a sense of grievance. It's tapping into young people who feel a lack of meaning. And, um, and when they say, it's your duty as a good Muslim to come to the caliphate. This is what the prophet wanted. Uh, this will give meaning to your life. That kind of messaging uh, can be very effective. And I, I see uh, videos of uh, uh, ISIL fighters uh, looking heroic, you know, giving fruit to young people. There was a series we saw a few months ago where there was, a, I don't know where the Ferris wheel is, but young children, them putting children on Ferris wheels. I mean. This is an appealing message to a young person who feels that they don't have any meaning in their life. And that, uh, remember, their call wasn't just for, for months, wasn't just for fighters. It was for architects and lawyers and plumbers and, because they were trying to create a state. We need people who will build a state. Uh, this is a kind of messaging which is appealing. Uh, and it's appealing for reasons because, because people feel that that, that enemy, that, that lack of meaning, and, and they're offering some meaning. All right, questions? Right there. Uh, my name is Paul Garcia. Here comes the microphone. 
My name is Saul Garcia, and I was wondering how often does ISIL use the dark internet to message and send money to new recruits? I'm, how, I'm sorry, how Could, often? We couldn't, how often do they use their message? What? The dark, dark web. The dark oh, on web. the dark web. On the dark, dark web. web. Um, well, there's a, they, they are denizens of the dark web. And I think the, the more successful the Silicon Valley companies are in tossing them off of the, of the regular web, uh, the, the more they will migrate to the dark web. And um, you know, that's not something I, I really see and probe, but, but they're definitely there. And I, I think their presence is, is increasing. Actually, I don't know if you write a little bit about this, David. You might know more than I do. Well, Part of the difficulty of the dark web is the same problem that you mentioned for Telegram, which is if you're going to be on it, you're on it because you're using Tor or some other anonymizing device to get into it. And uh, in some ways, uh, if the US and its partners know how to break that, they, they're almost interested in keeping it going and watching uh, who's on it. But it doesn't seem to have that broad appeal to go um, re recruit somebody who you don't know would necessarily be open to your message. If you've gone to the effort to be on the dark web, you're probably already leaning toward or part of the system. All right, here on the front row. It's coming. coming. Hi, um, I'm Ambassador Gilbert Robinson. I formerly was uh, um, very interested in what you're saying because I was formerly Deputy Director of the United States Information Agency. And my question is, why isn't the government uh, doing what was very successfully done at one time with the Russians? We married the private sector, Madison Avenue, creative brains with the people in the government. And I don't uh, hear about that being done or seeing it. I mean, if I said to the audience here, you watch television, what do you remember? What, what was the auto commercial? What was the Wheaties commercial? What was the insurance commercial? Things will pop up in your brain. And these creative people are basically on Madison Avenue and companies are paying tens of millions of dollars. We got them from free. You can get them for free. Why aren't you doing that? That's what I want to know. Well, uh, I have two responses to that. One, it is being done. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the White House hosted something that they called Madison Valley, which is a combination of minds from Madison Avenue and Silicon Valley to talk about what can they do in that space to help counteract ISIL's message and to create a counter-narrative. Um, so we're, we're doing that. Uh, a few months ago, I went out with the secretary to talk to all the Hollywood, uh, heads of all the Hollywood uh, production companies about this, and they were talking about how to help create better voices, more adept voices in the, in the Middle East who could help carry that message. At the same time, I mean, you mentioned USIA. That was a different era, because it, that was more about government messaging, and people cared about government messaging. Now, I remember during the last time I was with editor of, of Time, and, and uh, Bill Keller was editor of your Augusta newspaper. And he was saying, you know, it's just it's hard to break through. When the, when the editor of the New York Times is talking about it's hard to break through, it really is hard to break through. Uh, it's hard for the government to break through. And as I mentioned, all of this is in, in, most of it is in Arabic. It's not directed in English. So I think even the best minds of 
of Madison Avenue and Hollywood are actually not necessarily the most appropriate messengers or the creator of a message to reach the people that we're trying to reach. All right, this lady way over here. I think Farah wanted to ask. Farah, let Farah. Really, really quickly, add Mr. Ambassador, um, the idea of asking Hollywood, Bollywood, Madison Avenue, and others to take part in this effort has been going on since the Bush administration. And one thing you didn't say, and maybe you can't say, where is the money from Congress to allow our government to be able to do what needs to be done? Because yes, sir, there are people who will do it for free. But in my experience, having been in this issue for more than a decade, they want money at, at the end of the road. Um, and, and we can't and we cannot make that easy uh, if it, it, for them if we don't have the money to be able to pay for what it is we need. All right. You can get it free if you ask. We this have way. asked, sir. Thanks very much. Hi, my name is Rebecca McKinnon. I'm co-founder of the Citizen Media Network Global Voices and a board member of the Committee to Protect Journalists and also at New America Foundation currently. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so my question sort of relates to what works to ISIS and also who the most credible voices are uh, out there in the world. Um, I recently heard a, a Syrian journalist who'd been imprisoned under Assad for quite some time say that radicalization is the bastard child of dictatorship. Um, and we have a problem uh, amongst the journalists and, and civil society groups that I interact with uh, in, in a number of parts of, of you know, countries of concern, um, that not only do you have uh, secular bloggers, investigative journalists, human rights groups, uh, civil society groups being attacked by extremists, but they're also under attack by their own governments. You have journalists being jailed for, uh, on terrorism charges, you have human rights activists, civil society groups being jailed uh, and, and threatened and, and shut down by their governments. And these are, of course, the most credible voices for internationalism, for, for human rights, uh, for the kinds of values that are the best counter to ISIS. Um, and other extremism, uh, but they're, they're really being squeezed from both sides. Um, and we've, we've heard the UN Secretary General and others, and I, and I think Mr. Stengel, you, you've said this in some speeches before, that you know, an emphasis on civil liberties, social justice, anti-corruption, really dealing with the root causes uh, of injustice and, and alienation um, is, is part of this. Um, so I guess my question is, if we want to be bold, and, and really have a bold strategy, isn't it really about coming out very strongly for human rights, for freedom of expression, um, for, for internet freedom, for, for the things that would actually cause some of these alienated youth to, to feel that we're on their side? Um, you ask a, a very tough question, and I'll, I'll be as candid uh, as you have been in, in asking your question but I'll pull back for one second, uh, because I'm involved in all of our public diplomacy and how the United States projects itself abroad. And one of the curious things that we see at, at this point in the 21st century is that we were entering this new era of information where there's more information that for more people at more people's fingertips than any time in human history. But now there has been a concomitant rise of disinformation at the same time as lots of countries are realizing they can restrict free, spe free speech in their information space. It's really a nasty problem for, for America because we do talk about human rights and, and free expression and 
there's not just the rise in ISIL disinformation. There's, there's Russian disinformation. There's, there's what the Chinese are doing in restricting free speech in their space and also spending billions of dollars for their own narrative. Um, and as countries are cracking down on free speech, it's harder for us to combat that. It's harder for us to prevent a counter-narrative. It's a, it's a very, very difficult situation. That's something I hadn't really seen uh, till I was in this space. And, and again, to be candid, a lot of the partners that we have in the counter-ISIL space are also not beacons of, of, of free expression and human rights in a way that we would like. But it's a complex situation, and there's an urgency to combating ISIL. And, and you know, as Farah knows, when she was in the State Department, even with our allies and partners behind the scenes, we always talk to them about, about preserving free speech in their space, about releasing uh, journalists, how journalism is not a crime, uh, how their human rights activities have to be better. Um, and I do think in the long run, those values, the values of free speech and human rights are ultimately the values that will defeat movements like ISIL. But in the meantime, we have to do both. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. I've sort of let this run past the deadline, which I almost never do, but we were off to a late start here. So maybe a couple of more questions. Uh, right here, this, right here. I saw this hand go up. Thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz from Insight Iraq. Uh, I'm safe for what? Insight Iraq okay. company. Um, there's been a, one of the things that was mentioned is looking for grassroots groups, grassroots voices in terms of uh, countering. So I'd be curious to ask, how are those groups sort of selected, found, selected, and helped to be fa uh, funded in their efforts? Thank you. Um, I actually had a, uh, a lecture from Farah even before we came on stage <laughs> about all the groups that she had vetted when she was in the administration that we're not using and we do need to use. So, um, and, and the other idea behind that too is the credible voices and one of the things I talk to everybody around the world, to all diplomats and posts and ambassadors is, is that often people who have credibility in this space are very critical of the United States. And we have to be open to dealing with people who are critical of our policies uh, because their voices are more credible against ISIL. So, so some of what we've done are, are people who have worked with us over a long period of time. We have you know, one of the, the really the, the most golden aspects of, of American public diplomacy are exchange programs that we do. You know, Fulbright scholarships, Humphrey scholarships, uh, international visitors, leadership exchanges. We have many programs that target uh, Muslim leaders in the Middle East. We have a fantastic program for uh, Muslim women in STEM subjects. These people become verifiers, ambassadors for us. There are groups like the Hadaya Center in Abu Dhabi, uh, religious centers in the Middle East that we work with that are, that are just wonderful blue chip messengers. And so we, we are trying to create a, a whole uh, kind of ocean of, of voices like that, uh, some of whom are are very critical of, of U.S. foreign policy, and we just we can't we can't always pick and choose in that respect. But there are lots and lots of very credible voices out there. All right, one one more question, and perhaps we could have uh, a woman. How about right here? Uh, given what's been happening in Europe in this last uh, year and a half, uh, 
I wonder the degree to which the U.S., both public and private sector, and particularly imams in Europe as well as the uh, U.S., are starting to cooperate to counter the misrepresentation of the Koran. That seems to be so basic. And one of the problems, as you well know, with the younger generation, they are not Quranic scholars. And even the educated in the in middle age, many of them are not Quranic scholars. So they cannot counter the misrepresentation. So I wondered, what are you doing, and particularly with Europe, and is anyone doing something very specifically? Because you could counter every single thing that you can see on their website in the Quran. You, you know, Farah may be able to, I'm sure can add to this. One of the things that we've seen with our measurements of the young people who do go and fight, who are foreign fighters, is that the lion's share of them, 80%, have very little knowledge of Islam. And the reason they're going is not a religious reason. Yes, there are all these things we can read about the abuse of uh, hadiths by ISIL. These are people who don't even know what the hadiths are. So the appeal isn't a, a religious appeal. And at the same time, some of the clerics that we've worked with are people that don't necessarily have credibility because they're government clerics. The, the, but this is a, uh, you know, uh, King Abdullah said, two years ago, this is our struggle. This is our fight as Muslims. I mean, and anything that the U, I, there's almost nothing I don't think that the US government can do in terms of telling someone what is correct Islam versus what is not. That, that doesn't really seem to be our particular battle, although we do want to help people uh, that can do that. So there are a couple things that, that we have to unpack about the imams in Europe. The first is they can't outsource religious uh, instruction. And European governments have to get really clean and clear about where their imams inside of their own countries have learned about Islam and how well qualified they are to teach. And there is no instructive uh, system in place from Germany to Italy, from Norway to Brussels, that is able to actually talk about that. And that is the first and most important point. The second is to understand that millennials, by the way, I know that we think imams are really important, but millennials actually don't care about imams. I mean, the guy with the longest beard and the highest hat is not the kid, that what, what kids are listening to. So it goes directly to the point this gentleman was talking about, where are the grassroots voices that can not only speak about Islam, but actually can get to the heart of the identity crisis and make young people understand. Rick is absolutely right when he says it's not about how happy they are with the United States. It's how much of an influence they have with their own populations. And when you're asking the question of how the United States government can do more to get grassroots up and imams up, we can convene the right groups and give them the kind of support that they need to get their messages out in a way that makes sense for them. And the fundamental piece of that is listening. And if you are not listening at the grassroots and you are not localizing what is being said and not look at a country like Spain and say all of Spain is the same and all the Muslims in Spain are having the same problem, you will fail. But if you go deeper and you understand that what's happening in Barcelona is different than what's happening in Madrid, and you begin to understand the nuances within that, we can then begin to find imams and other credible voices, graffiti artists, hip-hop artists, and others that make sense for the millennial generation. And ma'am, we have been doing that. 
We've been doing that in Europe for a very long time, and by the way, very proudly, I will say, as a former US government employee, we were doing it in ways that the European government was not doing, starting at the Danish cartoon crisis all the way till today. All right. Well, on that, I think we'll end. And thank all of you uh, for teaching you and CSI. Thank you.